the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Jonathan Young. Jonathan is a psychologist who consults with organizational leaders and art professionals. He teaches at the Pacifica Graduate Institute and Antioch University in Santa Barbara. His background includes assisting mythologist Joseph Campbell at seminars and serving as founding curator of the Joseph Campbell Archives and Library. Jonathan is a contributing producer and featured commentator for some of History Channel's documentary series. He has an international online practice in consulting, coaching, and psychotherapy. In this episode, I explore with Jonathan the use of wisdom stories in personal exploration. How appreciating the mythic imagination gives us tools to deal with difficult experiences, and how looking at our lives as quests that include setbacks increases the sense of effectiveness. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Okay, so Jonathan, here is my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Well, I think of it in a multidimensional sense. We need to be able to take care of ourselves physically and, and survive. Uh, we need to know our inner lives well enough that our own demons don't trip us up. So uh, self-knowledge, self-regulation is a fancy language, a fancy term in, in psychology for being able to... Um, uh, access your emotions, think clearly in under stress, and use your resources, that your intelligence and your strength and your options well. So I think of all of that uh, working uh, well together, ideally. That's on point. I, I really like that, which leads, I think, nicely into the topics that we said we were going to talk about. And I just want to say straight off the bat that this is a subject area that I'm really interested in and excited to talk to you about. So um, I'm pumped. One of the things that we could maybe talk about first is the use of wisdom stories in personal exploration. The um, ancestors have left us some guidance. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. People have come this way before and faced difficult times. And uh, most of the guidance, the wisdom, has been left in the form of stories. It's also in art and religion and philosophy, but the common people um, needed to have the guidance available in fairly simple form. So fairy tales, legends, sagas, mythology, these stories, and they're entertaining, they're good yarns, um, but what's in them is a kind of compacted wisdom, how to do life, how to handle the different challenges how to deal with the changes. We don't like change. We, 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 we talk about liking change, but actually when it actually happens to us, 
it's distressing because it is the opposite of control. And everybody would rather be in control, at least emotionally in control. Life changes on its own. There are life stage challenges. Uh, there are big uh, social upheavals. There are uh, uh, changes in climate. Things happen. So we need to use all of the resources that are available, all the wisdom that humanity has ever come up with. So studying those old stories is really worth some time. And the way to study them is to look closely at the, at the images. It's, it's a picture language. And that's the key task is to unpack the pictures, try to learn what these hieroglyphics uh, are, are telling us. And so you, you take a story like a little red riding hood, well, it's a child uh, going for a visit to her grandmother. So what? I mean, simple little tale. Uh, children visit their grandmothers all the time, but not by themselves necessarily at a young age, not uh, in a forest. Uh, maybe it's down the block to grandmother's apartment, but to go to a dark forest and there's a wolf, a talking wolf. Now, this is rich stuff. There, there's something going on in this story besides a child visiting her grandmother. And when you start pondering those things, there's a lot in it. So maybe you can speak to that because you, you mentioned that as, as, a, as one of the stories that many people would be familiar with. What is the lesson there? What is the message? What can we draw from that? Well, okay. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very brief story, and yet there's a lot going on. First of all, there's a mother. We, don't, we barely see her. She's at the very beginning of the story instructing her child to go to grandma's house. She makes a basket. There's a loaf of bread in there. There's a bottle of wine. Okay, some nice things, a gift or a food, but it's also the, the sacrament. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the mass there in the basket. So there's a little religious implication here, and we go off into the woods. Why does grandmother even live in the woods? Well, an old woman might. If she wasn't getting along in town, if she was being accused of uh, some religious practices that people didn't approve of, if she was a herbalist or a midwife, so there's a whole tradition there. But psychologically speaking, that is our own wisdom, our own agedness, uh, which we can experience early in life. You don't have to be old to have old wisdom that is around and it's in us someplace. Where is it in us? Well, psychologists would argue it's in the unconscious, in a part of ourselves that is not easily accessed. That could be the woods. So we're going into a part of ourselves that's a little bit dark and spooky. And what happens? Our mother has warned us not to talk to anybody. But a wolf uh, starts walking along and starts talking to us. Now that could be flirting with danger, or that could be getting in touch with the animal part of ourselves. Everyone in athletics knows that the body has its own rhythms, its own ways, and the, we're in a kind of relationship with our own physicality. So here we're in a conversation with a wolf. And the wolf tempts the little girl. He says, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lovely meadow there with all these flowers. Uh, I, 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 why don't you pick some flowers? Well, he's almost reading her mind. She loves picking flowers. But she was told to go to street. Well, she was told not to talk to anybody. She's already breaking that rule. She was also told to go straight to grandmother's house. Instead, she wanders off and picks flowers. Is that complicity with danger? When we have problems, we can sometimes look back and say, you know, 
a lot of that just happened to me, but I made a couple of choices in the middle of that whole thing. So I'm actually kind of involved. Why would we do that? Well, maybe because we're not entirely on our side or maybe because we need the adventure to learn something for any reason. While she's picking flower, the wolf dashes in and finds grandmother and gobbles her up. Everybody knows this story. And then we finally get to the cottage ourselves and see grandma in the bed, not looking well at all. I mean, we're supposed to be going there because grandmother's ailing. And sure enough, she doesn't look herself. Well, of course she's not herself. It's the wolf. We know the story. And we get over close and the wolf gobbles us up. This is a belly of the beast story, like, like Jonah and the great fish. There's all these different stories. That could be the moments in our story when we're swallowed by despair or fear or sorrow, when we are overwhelmed by life, when we are uh, done in by our own emotions. This is a difficult part of a life experience, and we need a story like this. And one of the things the story is saying, it's not over when that happens. Something more might happen. What happens? The huntsman, we call him a hunter, comes to the door. He knows the old woman. He's checking. He's, he's a little upset that her door was left open. She never did that. Well, that's a little girl not closing the door. That's a small thing. But sometimes the inner hunter, the part of us that can take care of business, the part of us that has a rifle that knows how to solve problems, notices small things and we should be alert to things that aren't quite in their pattern and he points that rifle at the wolf saying i've got you at last well he's a hunter he probably knows the various wolves in the forest and he's been thinking of getting this one for a while and then something crosses his mind we call this intuition wait a second i don't see the old woman i wonder if this wolf might have gobbled her up and instead of shooting the wolf, which would have killed the wolf and grandma and Little Red Riding Hood, he's operating on intuition now. And by the way, the huntsman is part of Little Red Riding Hood. Everything in this story is part of ourselves. He instead cuts open the wolf and rescues grandma and Little Red Riding Hood, and we have a happy ending. The part of ourselves that can solve a problem must not come into the story too soon. That would avoid all the danger and avoid the wisdom. We have to get into the lurch. We have to get into the belly of the beast first to learn a thing or two. And we learn a lot in the story, even brief as it is. For, for one thing, we learn we have a hunter who can come in and solve the problem when we really need it. But we also have a wise old woman. We also have a little girl who breaks the rules a little bit. And in the end, maybe that's useful. So I was thinking about while you were saying that this concept of the shadow and we hear that often these days, especially if you're looking at the, the field of psychology and especially Jungian psychology. How would you define that and how would you explain that and why, why is that it's so important? Because as far as I understand it is that, you know, behind the shadow is the light. But I know that most people want to avoid, you know, they don't want to, to approach situations and feel uncomfortable. So we're in a society now that feeling uncomfortable just is not something that people want to put themselves in. Right. But what they don't realize is that you have to go deep within yourself and look at all of yourself, including the things that you most want to run from, that shadow. And only once you confront that, 
is true transformation possible? Right. In this story of Little Red Riding Hood, the shadow would be the forest and the wolf. And without those elements, we don't have a story. So you need some shadow just to make life interesting. In the story of Jonah and the great fish, the fish is, and the deep ocean is kind of the shadow element. If that weren't in the story, Jonah would not turn around and do what he is supposed to do. He, he has a calling in life. Sometimes shadow is getting our attention and making us do the hard thing that life is asking of us. A shadow is what we would rather other people not see in us. It is our own conflicted, difficult self, sometimes called one's demons. Uh, they, they are very powerful. This part of life uh, is strength. So it wouldn't be good to avoid it if it's strong, it's valuable. Strength is always valuable. It would be better to get it on the team. If you've got something strong in the picture, try to make a partnership with it. That is a better, that is a more integrated move. Early in our conversation, I was talking about self-reliance involving integration. This, this need, means we get over good and bad, right and wrong, this and that, day and night, black and white. This divisive thinking where we only identify with part of ourselves means we're going out half-loaded. Half our team isn't even in the adventure. We need the rough and ready part, too. And that shadow part is not as attractive. And uh, even the relationship, if we try to make friends with our emotional life, our fear, our, our anger, our sorrow, it's messy. We'd rather have the tidiness. Now, tidiness usually means no emotion. But that's not really claiming our full human potential. We need all of it. And by the way, when we get into a relationship with shadow, it isn't as ugly as it seemed. A lot of what was scary about it was the distance. It was our own judgmental reaction to it. But that is a bold move to turn toward the part of our inner life we are not comfortable with, to turn toward the part that would be embarrassing if other people saw it and embrace it. Essentially say, hey, hey, you you rough guy in the corner there, let's talk. Let's see if we can cut a deal here because I'm impressed with you. I'm kind of scared of you, but I want to see what you can bring to my life story. So then the shadow really offers an opportunity as a transcendent function, really. Yeah, the transcendent function is a very interesting life idea in the life and work of Carl Jung. Um, where we have our ordinary way of looking at things, and then somehow we transcend that. Transcend that is stepping out of the box. It's getting to a point of view that's beyond ordinary thinking. And yes, turning towards something that we have always rejected is a radical move. I'm getting older. I'm, I'm starting to get much more interested in self-acceptance versus self-improvement. They're both important. But I'm tipping, excuse me, I'm tipping toward radical self-acceptance, where whatever I've got here and in here, I want to make, I want to make peace with, and I want to get along, and I want to, I want to claim it, and that itself is a transcendent move, because our starting place in life is, well, I want, to, I want everybody to like me, I want to be successful, I want to look good, I want to be cool, uh, and and those things are very limiting. I, I still want to be safe. I still want to be successful. I still want people to like me, and I still want to look cool. But at what cost? If messiness gets me something of value, bring on the messiness. How do we appreciate 
mythic imagination and how does that give us tools to deal with difficult experiences and maybe i think a good starting point would be what do we mean by mythic imagination the mythic imagination is uh first of all receive wisdom and this is all the stories and art and uh the the uh, condensed accomplishment of humanity and that is the key word is imagination. There's a great deal of creativity that has gone into it. Now, mythic kind of means timeless. It means epic. It means important. It means significant. It also means falsehood. And here is a tricky thing to understand. The mythic imagination is mostly given to us in fiction, in stories that aren't exactly history, aren't exactly factual. I mean, if you open scriptures, you'll have angels flying around and think, well, do angels really fly around? I look for them. I don't see them. Maybe it's a story. Maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe it's about our own imagination being able to fly around and get to places we can't get to physically. We need to start looking at things figuratively, psychologically, symbolically to see what we've got here. So the mythic imagination is all those stories and on a personal level, it's what comes to us in dreams. It's the spontaneous work of fantasy and creativity, these stories, these ideas. And artists, of course, can dream while fully awake. Uh, somebody can pick up his, his paint brush and look at a blank canvas and start putting something there that is purely out of his creativity. Isn't, it was never, never existed before and is essentially coming out of a kind of daydream. So all the meditative techniques we can do to be aware of the fleeting images that come to us both day and night will open us uh, more fully into the realm of the imagination. And then Carl Jung has some very complicated ideas I won't go into in detail, how the personal unconscious co connects into a collective unconscious. This is where deep in the unknown regions of our inner life, we're tapping into a stream that represents the whole of the human experience. And that will bring us things we did not think up ourselves. And uh, good writers and, and others in creative work will get up in the morning and head straight for their uh, word processor, straight, even before getting to the coffee, and write a few things down. Maybe it's their dream or just a little free imagination, a little brainstorming, because there's an awareness that in sleep, we are closer to that underground stream and we can pick up a little bit and bring it out into consciousness in our, in our productivity. So talking about this idea of the collective unconscious, there seems to be a kind of a perennial story. And no matter how far you go back, even if you read one of my favorite books is Homer's Iliad. And if you read that, so many of the things that I've experienced in my life are right there on those pages. And if you don't take it literally and you look at the metaphorical answers that it brings forward, you can really gain from that some insight. And I know Joseph Campbell talked about this continuously, and that was really his idea behind the hero's journey. Right. It's the initiatory adventure. It is how we deal with the great challenges of life. The Iliad and the Odyssey are about going off to war. And you can think of that in literal terms. Uh, I'm a male. I have served in the military. Sometimes you literally go off to war. I didn't actually go to battle myself, but I was trained for it as anyone in the military does. But then on a more symbolic level, it's going off to work. 
going off to the, the battle to make some money and to make a life for yourself, or it's dealing with a crisis that faces the community or a personal crisis. So there's the call. And usually the call is trouble. It is taking you off to, away from the familiar, whether that's literally going off to a military training camp or going off on a, on a, to a different country or just off to a different office, some new place, some new experience. Or it could be a new idea, going off into a different way of seeing things, going off into the unknown, into challenges that we do not understand because we've never faced them before. And so people would often think, gee, I wish that hadn't happened. I wish that illness had not entered my family. I wish that financial challenge had not arisen in my work life. I, I, I wish that relationship problem hadn't torn my life apart. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, there is a part of us that wants comfort, but comfort has been oversold. We need the adventure. We need change. We need disruption. We need messiness. The call will pull us into that. And we might go kicking and screaming, complaining for all we're worth, or you might be a brave type. Say, all right, I am up to this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what our attitude's like. We're in the soup now, and we're going to have to deal with it. And most people survive and learn a thing or two. Most people look back later and are grateful for how much stronger they are for having had that difficulty and coped with it. And things happen. You get help. Uh, there are companions. There are there are some mentors. Oh, you mentioned the Iliad. Wait, get into Homer. One of the great things is the story about when King Odysseus was headed off uh, to battle, uh, he had a son, Telemachus, and he was concerned about his son. He knew he'd be gone a long time. It, it took a long time to travel. War took a long time. Odysseus did not know he would be gone for so very, very long because you had the whole Odyssey, which is Odysseus trying to come home. I often think of, about, of it as a story about a man who would simply not ask directions. But be that as it may, it took him a long time, and he was aware that it would be lengthy, and his son would need guidance, some male attention, some lessons. So he made an arrangement with a friend, a neighbor, a man of royal class himself, so he would be appropriate to what the boy would need to know. And his name was Mentus or in some translations, mentor. And that is where we get this word from this story. And mentor was a pretty good friend. He, he came rather diligently and looked in on the boy and they had a good relationship. But this story went on much longer than anybody had expected. And gradually mentor was getting older. He didn't come by as often. He wasn't doing his job. Well, he was once in a while, but not well. And up on Mount Olympus, the gods became concerned. In those days, there were many gods. And in those days, the gods came down and got involved with the mortals. Athena, the goddess of learning and wisdom and creativity and art and craft and everything, she, she was the one pretty much in charge of lessons, schooling and all of that. Won't do. Got to do something here. So she personally, this goddess, is going to come down and help Telemachus out. Well, the divinities learned long ago, don't show up in your royal splendor. Don't show up with all that God stuff. Scares the toes off the mortals. It causes trouble. But, but they're shapeshifters. I mean, they're gods. They can do anything they want. So she spins herself up into mortal form as a human, something that would not scare the boy, who's by now turning into a young man. She takes the form of King Mentus, mentor, the old man who stops by. Now, we don't have footnotes on this. 
we don't know if young Telemachus ever noticed that some of the lessons were better than others. But what I like about this story is the mentor is sometimes the neighboring old man, and sometimes it's from Mount Olympus. It's a divine energy. This happens. This happens in coaching. This happens in therapy. This happens in classrooms. When you have a good teacher, when you have a good connection with a mentoring figure, sometimes you're learning from that person, and sometimes it's a transcendent wisdom coming through them. Uh, I have been a mentor many times. I'm a therapist. I do a lot of online therapy. I do teaching, various things. And, so, and every now and then, I'm reaching for a pen to write something down that I just said because I'm fully aware it didn't come from me. I just was you know, open to something that came through. I'm thinking, oh, that's good. I want that for me for later. And that's how mentoring works. So that's one part of that journey model that Joseph Campbell was, was writing about. And his work is really uh, helpful at any stage of life because these big transition moments, these threshold crossings, happen again and again in life's long story. There's a really good book. I can't remember the author. It's called Big Magic, which speaks to what you've just said, where you are talking to somebody and this idea comes out of you, but you know that it seems foreign in a way because you have no idea where it actually came from. It, it just, there's this divine spark to it. The artists and teachers in ancient Greece would have shrines in their homes to the various gods, depending on if you were a poet, You'd have a shrine to the particular, the muse of poetry. Always the acknowledgement that the good stuff was coming from beyond yourself. Now, that's beautiful. I love that. I think that Len at least leads in nicely to looking at our lives as quests. That includes the setbacks, uh, setbacks, increases the sense of effectiveness, right? So how do we look at our lives as quests? I mean, how do we do that in the modern era? Because I think we are so, yes, we watch movies and, and things like that. but we are somewhat disconnected, right? I think most people probably haven't spent any amount of time looking at the old myths or even seeing them more than just pure stories of fiction. First of all, it's not just in old stories, it's in new stories as well. There are only so many stories. So Hollywood is aware that this quest model is very engaging, that people like to ponder this story. It was George Lucas and the Star Wars films that really took this a big leap forward because he read Joseph Campbell and worked directly from the master. But others have copied Lucas. Uh, a couple of years ago, a pretty good movie called Wonder Woman. She's on an island. She's very idyllic, although they're training for the worst. So there's constant readiness in their uh, preparation. After all, it is a warrior culture. And then problems come and she rises to the... It is a quest movie. So actually, if we want to think of our life as, lives as quests, we might look at the fiction that we have loved, the novels we have watched, uh, read and the, the te television programs we have watched, our favorite large-scale movies, and ask ourselves, okay, did I identify with the protagonist? When I was watching Wonder Woman, was I Diana, uh, you know, princess of the Amazon? Yes, yes. Gender doesn't matter. I'm out there throwing the spears and doing the, because a story is st structured for the audience to get off on the wonderful exploits of the heroic characters up there on the screen. I am also her companion because he's a guy, so I kind of identify with him. And then a little bit, the enemy, the enemy characters, the shadow figures are very interesting. They're often the, the most vivid characters in a story. So to learn more about our own quest, 
ponder stories about quests. And you can go back to the Iliad, the great yarn, or the Odyssey, or the other stories. The Knights of the Round Table are particularly attractive to me as, as a guy. Uh, the, the, the wonderful tales of heroines, Esther and Ruth, and the scriptures. There, if you want, want to follow a character of your own gender and color and, and class first, that's great. But then venture out and, and, and watch heroic story. If you're a guy, watch the, the women's stories. And if you're a woman, read some of the men's stories because all the lessons are larger than color or caste or, 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 or gender. And we, we can learn from all of these. I think it might be useful if you can outline the hero's journey, the steps in the hero's journey, because that speaks to those movies that you mentioned. George Lucas, for example, very much used the steps of the hero's journey in his movies. And I think that's the thing that spoke to people, but not everybody knows what those steps are. And I think if you are aware of those steps, then you can identify where you are on your own mythic journey. Right. And I'll, I'll just mention a resource to your listeners that the, the Joseph Campbell Foundation has a website, JCF, Joseph Campbell Foundation, okay, jcf.org. Uh, they're in the San Francisco area, and they've got uh, this all posted, their articles and outlines of the journey, or just uh, Google uh, Joseph Campbell and Hero's Journey, and all the steps are there. But let me touch on a couple of big ones. I mentioned the calling. This is what pulls you away from your old patterns. And then you go through a threshold crossing. That is, you go over into a new place. This can be an actual landscape or a new idea, a new experience. And then there are our trials, sometimes called the road of trials, with a lot of tests, challenges, difficulties, learning experiences. People who have gone off to school are aware of this. You go to, a, whether you're a residential student or not, you go to a new set of buildings, you've got new mentors, you've got new colleagues and companions and allies and stuff, and you're thrown into a learning experience. I know people get very romantic about their school days. But actually, most of that time, we're terribly anxious, worried about the exams, worried about the papers. And that is the nature of the quest, is we are in these difficult experiences, one right after another. And we figure things out, which is to say we learn and we grow. Finally, there is the great uh, showdown, the largest of all, sometimes called the, the night sea journey or, or the uh, the. Uh, dark night of the soul, very poetic phrases for getting into really difficult circumstances. Essentially, you are facing your own death. And there is either a death and rebirth, as in the Jesus story, as in many of the large religious stories, or a close brush with death. I mentioned Little Red Riding Hood being swallowed by the beast, uh, Jonah inside the great fish. Uh, a very death-like experience. And then the story is not over. There is rebirth. And what has happened there, and let me stay on this point for a moment, is your old worldview has died. Your old rules, your, your sense of yourself, your sense of how life works has died. It was very limited. It was the stuff of grade school. It was not the best wisdom available. It needed to go. But it is quite wrenching when it actually dies. It is terrifying. Everything I know is wrong. All my maps are useless. I am starting completely from scratch here. That is the best moment, but the most terrifying one. And then the road of return as we figure out how to get back into life. Because often we are not working at that particular time. We're maybe not in a relationship. We're, we've lost some friends. We're, we're kind of wander, wandering strangers a little, a little bit at the margins. 
but you need to live in society. You need to live in the world of other people. So then you work your way back in. You find your way back home, whether that's literal home or kind of figurative, finding a home within humanity, finding a place on earth. And that is the return threshold crossing. And that's a very difficult part of the story as well. And then we are the master of two worlds. That is the way Joseph Campbell described it. We are still good at life. We can hold a job. You can be in a family life. You, you can be a good neighbor. You can be a good citizen. You can do all the things that everyone in town is doing. Plus, you have your memory of all those adventures. You have an inner life. You live in other dimensions, invisible worlds. To keep it simple, we can just say the world of the imagination, the world of emotion, uh, a life that includes studying our dreams and, and reading about these things and perhaps uh, delving into some of the mystery literature or other religions and things that we never knew about before. And our neighbors aren't doing all that. It takes some time. It, there are some resources. That is, you need to buy books. You need to go to workshops once in a while. And, and you got to save up your money for that. But mostly it just takes commitment. It takes diligence. It takes valuing the unseen world. And that is the great boon. That's the, the word that Joseph Campbell used, unusual word, the boon. The blessing, the elixir, the treasure, the prize, what you get for all your trouble is a much more complicated, enriched life when you have ended the journey. So on that return, if you have gained something, the boon, as you said, Joseph Campbell described it, how important do you think it is for a person to come back and contribute to the society or the tribe that they come from? That's quintessential in really embodying those lessons, that journey, and seeing it from a perspective of giving back that which you have attained. Terribly important point. Um, it is not out of self-sacrifice. Uh, we give willingly, joyfully. Uh, Joseph Campbell reminds us we are to share the boon. It's not your personal property. It is the property of the ages. You have been blessed to get the glimpse of it. And then whatever you have learned, you pass it around because there is far more than you need. Your cup is overflowing. And there's an enthusiasm. You can't see these wonders and not be excited about it. So you do what you can. If you're a writer, you write a self-help book. If you're a teacher, you organize a class. If, if you're a businessman, you try to come up with a, a better business system. You do what you can. If you're a parent, you try to be a really uh, wise and, and, and patient parent. These are the forms that can take. And notice they're all in regular life. They're not out in some other dimension someplace. This stuff happens next to us and across the street and, and downtown. It, it, is, it is happening all around us. So it's how we choose to use this great blessing we have been able to glimpse. And even though it's our own diligence, I mean, we worked hard on the quest uh, and our own sacrifice, it cost us time and money and energy and attention. It was mostly a blessing. It is mostly just a, a, a totally unfair, surprising thing that happened to land on us. And we lucked out and we're aware and usually overflowing with gratitude and so enthusiastic that unfortunately people returning from the quest are a little bit obnoxious because they're, they're a little too eager to share. But you, you get a little over that because you have to be receptive to where people are. So you mostly offer it. You say, here, anybody interested? And, and there aren't that many, but a few. And then you're in the mentor position. 
then you're able to say, here, read this book. And, oh, by the way, check this out. And if you're a little scared right now, that's part of it. Here's how to work with that. And you do your best to pass it along. So you have talked to this, but I would like to delve a little bit deeper into how we can appreciate our own lives as a story and how that could teach us some valuable secrets about the journey. Well, there's the story of life. Joseph Campbell was sometimes challenged. How, how, why, why do you see this story as so important and so universal? Because he kept looking at different cultures and seeing a similar pattern. This is one of the controversial aspects of his career because anthropologists like to emphasize how different cultures are. And he kept noticing the similarities. Well, these are not mutually exclusive ideas. There can be similarities and differences. And there are between cultures and there are between individuals. But he was a comparative theorist. So he wanted to see the similarities and emphasize that. And we notice that there are the patterns of life. There is youth. There is adulthood. There is maturity. There is elderhood. This is the journey we're all on. And that's one of the points he made. That's why this journey story is so important, because everybody's in it. We're actually in a number of stories at the same time, but we're all in this one. And then the key elements of the story, which are these moments of threshold crossing. Well, we, we call those life stage crises as people in my field, psychology and consulting. So we have puberty and, and the young people have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. Some cultures don't have a ceremony like that, but something happens around 12 when we begin to be sexually mature. It's the beginning of turning toward the world of others it's the beginning of noticing and looking beyond the family. Then around uh, 18 or 19, there's the actual leaving home. Even if our, we still live in an apartment in mom's house, we, we're, we're actually leaving home. Our attention is out in our life now. And then around 30, there's another one. Then there's one that comes in at midlife, around 40. And that one's been written about a lot because there's a big shifting there. There's the one that happens as we get closer to retirement and we realize that the big energy of life, which is making some money, having a job, that, that big project is beginning to wrap up. And that one is terribly, I'm, I'm near that one. So let me talk about that one. Um, that's devastating because uh, if a lot of your identity has gone into how you make your money and what your job title on your business card is, and that's wrapping up where you're going to be something else. And a lot of people don't make it across this threshold they pretty much lay down and quit at this point because they don't know how to do the next story. But you know, modern medicine is pretty good. We've got quite a few years after that story and that can be elderhood and it can be the, the life of, of, of exploration and inner work. And it, it can actually uh, be the best part of the story in, in, in some lives. I read a book, I hadn't mentioned this one in advance, but there's a book on being older that I really loved. It's by James Hillman who was a leading uh, Jungian psychologist you would have heard of, but not everybody listening. And the, the one I like is called uh, The Force of Character. And he's talking about how, how good the piece of life that starts around 60 can be. And the reason is because you finally have a clue. You, you know who you are, finally. And, and you're not distracted as much, so you can start going to a much, much deeper and extremely rewarding uh, sense of yourself. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just thinking while you were saying that, and maybe you can talk to this, is you know, especially in, in the mythic stories, there are always these archetypes. And what would be the most common archetypes that you could think of and definitely the ones that most people would be familiar with that show up in their own lives? I think that's good signposts, right, to see kind of where you are in that moment in time. 
Sure. Well, some characters are essentially archetypes. You open a tarot card, and every card's an archetype. So, so we've got the fool. Uh, the fool is someone uh, that just doesn't have a clue. Uh, all young people, and, and, and most of us, the whole story. The good news about a fool is you're open to learning. You're desperate to learn. You know that what you know is inadequate. You got to have more. So that's a very motivating thing. It's also very positive. Is there tends to be an openness. Uh, the fool is not the king. The king already knows and is in control. And that's a good role too. So you have key roles like we don't have kings around, but the, the ruling archetype, this could be the president, the president of the company. This is the, the person in charge, the boss. We all have somebody that's kind of managing things. That's an important archetype. We have a magician. That's an archetypal character. So we don't have to be Merlin with all kinds of uh, magic to, to do in the forest and such, but a person doing creative work at their job is a little bit of Merlin. There's a little magic going on. Glinda the Good West, the Good Witch of the of West is able to uh, bring a magic wand in there and do things. I did that because I, I, right there, I moved from Merlin to Glinda to make it clear, none of these archetypes are limited by gender. You might think of one as a woman, but there's a male version of it and vice versa all the time. Uh, we mentioned in the little story of uh, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, the huntsman. The hunter is the one who goes out and solves the problem of getting something to eat uh, and, and other problems that need to be a, a kind of brave uh, that goes out into the difficult tasks. So there, there are all these different um, archetypal characters that populate all the movies we have seen all the mythological stories, uh, there are some that are a little bit oversold. Uh, the warrior, it comes up a lot in action movies. It's terribly important because, uh, well, there's action, which, is, which means danger. They, they're essentially danger movies. And for danger, we need to be competent and effective and able to defend ourselves and able to solve problems. But there are other dimensions of being a warrior, like going into incredibly vulnerable emotions. That requires courage and and it is going into the dark it is also going beyond being in control all the time and relationship love family connection friendship that's all built on that kind of courage so these different moods in essential in essence every emotion has an archetypal pattern behind it so I think one of the reasons why the warrior archetype is so prominent is because it's we look at the warrior and we see these characteristics, these attributes that they have. And for most of us, that's what we wish we could body those characteristics. And that's why that warrior archetype is such a powerful image, even today, as it was a thousand years ago. Uh, Wonder Woman, I was talking about this movie a moment ago, is a terrific warrior story, and there's all this training. One thing about anybody who's got to deal with difficult challenges is you better be prepared. Do your homework. So the whole first part of the movie is a mentor story where a terrific martial arts teacher is explaining these moves. And then there is the moment when it is time to test the initiate, to test the protege, and the a teacher throws a spear directly at Diana and out of instinct just to protect herself she puts her hands up and it works it the the spear she's got these bracelets on the spear is is it does not hurt her and is thrown back it's not simply thrown back an entire force field of energy knocks everybody over and that is the moment she realizes 
she has powers beyond her own understanding. And that is what our training, mostly self-training, but teachers are definitely involved, um, will teach us not just to be strong, but to tap into strength beyond our own. And uh, th this is very admirable in movies, and, and it is a very important part of life to get into that kind of self-discipline and that ability to tap into the resources that are available to us. Later in that story, she becomes quite confused because while she is terrific at martial arts and all of her skills, she's a fantastic warrior. There are many areas of life that she doesn't understand. And in fact, her background is very limited. She's been on an idyllic little island all her experience. When she gets out into the war, things are not as she expected. So even the warrior is in a position of rapid learning. And this requires admitting we do not know. Learning constantly involves confusion. And when people look back on, I was saying earlier, people get nostalgic about their school days. Yeah, sure. Later, you can think of all the cool things you learned. But while you're learning them, it's nothing but distress and confusion. So it's a complicated picture. It's just a personal question, Jonathan. I was wondering, have you always been interested in the impact of stories? I and mean, how did you come to this work? Oh, through Sunday school. I, I, I grew up in a church family and, and it's Bible stories. And, and all the teachers made these complicated life lessons out of these old stories. And then I met some other teachers that used stories from Greek mythology. And I realized, oh, it's not just the Bible, it's stories. It's, it's the story, the parable, the ability to open out a wisdom story and apply it to life situations. And there are so many more so so i'm grateful to know the ones from the scriptures pretty well and then i know others and it's fine to compare and contrast uh and then there's our own life story which is what it in, in the end is important to most of us we're self-centered people and we realize that all of those wisdom stories pretty much are there to help us with this big story that we're trying to figure out and we can borrow from whichever tradition we want because they're all available. The Norse stories are wonderful tales of eight-legged horses and trees that reach up to heaven. They're terrific stories uh, that we can study when we get a chance. So as we come to the end of our talk, Jonathan, what could you leave us with? A message of inspiration, some motivation. You're living a wonderful story that has never happened before. We are both um, quite unique and in a way very related to every other human that has ever happened and to the animals themselves in some other ways. To take our own lives ser seriously, to uh, claim them and take them in our own arms as they are, not as the perfected versions we would like to show other, others, but with all of the contradictions and messy parts, with all of the emotions, the confusion, the sorrows, the fears, the parts that might seem a little less attractive. The wonder of it all is such a thing to celebrate. When we really take a literary stance toward our own life experience, then the things that we might have thought of as embarrassing are in fact terrific chapters in our story. They were setbacks, but it was some of the best reading. Those are some of the most exciting tales to tell later. And there is a radical self-acceptance in that. This is my story, therefore, 
It's one heck of a good story. I'm not going to wish it was something else. I'm going to try to figure out what it's supposed to be. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.